Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. There's probably no crazy Supreme Court opinion is happening. We're going to ask you about that. Right. Why not? (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, they're in Nantucket this weekend or something. I was going to say, when is the term officially over? There's no actual date. It's when they're done. Just when they're like, we're finished. We're going on vacation. They get extensions. You know, it's like term paper frenzy. Oh, my God. They have, nobody has a cushier job than these people. Except they're stuck working with people they hate, you know, for Right. Lifetime. Right, right. Tenure. But right. It's June. It's the it's time June. of year. June is the cruelest month when, when we, it comes to the Supreme Court. Oh, yes, the cruelest, quietest, angstiest. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a ritual for when rulings come down? How do you wait? Or do you have an inside track? I don't have an inside track. Sometimes the people who argue cases somehow seem to get tipped off mm-hmm. when there's going to be a ruling because they always somehow magically show up at the courthouse mm. for a photo op. Um the court announces in advance when it's going to make big make its rulings. A lot of people spend a lot of time going onto websites like Scotus Blog and obsessively oh. hitting return to see what's happening. We all now are used to this idea that it's June, that we're going to wait with sort of learned helplessness to find out what the rulings are from this Supreme Court, and then these nine unelected government officials with lifetime tenure are going to tell us what kind of country we live in. And that that ritual that we've all become accustomed to is part of the challenge this all, I would say, poses to our democracy. The perfect lead-in. <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Hive. I'm Claire Howarth, executive editor at Vanity Fair. It's been a week of historic legal developments in our country. Donald Trump now has the superlative distinction of being the first former president to be arraigned on federal charges, and the Supreme Court continues to demonstrate its severing from popular American opinion. And with me are my wonderful colleague, Bess Levin, Vanity Fair's political correspondent, and I have to add, the sharpest headline writer I have ever known. You flatter me. And Michael Waldman, the president and CEO of NYU's nonpartisan Brennan Center for Justice. His new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America, is just out, and you can buy it at your favorite indie. My personal shout-out to Community Bookstore in Park Slope. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for coming, Michael. Mine as well, and it's great to be here. Oh, really? Love it. (laughs) Uh, Book is fantastic, rich, 
very readable and accessible. And it positioned this current court as a completely right-wing political body, one that was already pretty anomalous for democracy. As you just said, unelected political appointees who wield enormous power, six conservatives from presidents who are not popularly elected, ah, with just three justices, all of whom are women, um, on the liberal side. And you point out that traditionally we describe the court eras by the justice of that time, but this court is not at all the Roberts Court. It is the Clarence Thomas Court. Tell us a little bit more about Clarence Thomas Court. Well, you're right that as a general matter, Roberts holds the gavel, but Thomas holds the influence Mm -hmm. and increasingly the power. He's been on the court for a long time. His arrival there, of course, was massively controversial because of the allegations by Anita Hill during his confirmation hearing. What I think folks maybe don't realize is that his approach to the law has been very radical and and really on the fringe for almost the whole time he's been there. He basically does not believe in following precedent. He has said that stare decisis, which is the Latin phrase the lawyers use to talk about following prior rulings, he says that's a mantra for when you don't want to think. <laughs> he He has argued for— Super originalism for the idea that the only legitimate way to read the Constitution is to ask what it meant to the people who ratified it, say, in the late 1700s, which means quite literally that we must be governed right now by the social views of property-owning white men from a time when women could not vote, when black people were enslaved, and so on. It is a, it, it is, to me, an absurd way to run a railroad. It's also the case, I think, that folks might not realize, it's really new. It clothes itself in tradition. But it's only about 11 months old that the Supreme Court has said, this is how we're going to do it from now on, that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed. And that will have massive, massive social consequences for all of us, for millions of people going forward. That's right. I know Bess has questions about (laughs) originalism and its uh, worthiness. I mean— isn't originalism, it's just, I'm, I'm, excuse me, uh, it's bullshit. It's just like, <laughs> what's they the, get what's to the say, Latin word for right, that? bullshit. <laughs> that was my Italian pronunciation, not Latin. Um, but like, they can just say, oh, this is what, they have no idea what they meant. It's not just anachronistic. It's the idea that they know. Whereas, so Clarence Thomas, well, this is what they meant. But couldn't I come along and say, no, that's not what they meant. This is what they meant. Right. I mean, think of all the ways people debate about history right. and what happened. <laughs> it's so much of the history they're using is just wrong. Right. It, it's, a, it's sort of similar in its specificity and, and subtlety to the medieval times theme restaurant. Right. You know, I mean, it's basically, <laughs> give you an example. One of the really radical rulings from last June, Mm -hmm. when they did three really big rulings in a row that crammed decades of social change into three days, one on the Second Amendment, one on abortion rights, Dobbs, and one curbing the power of regulatory agencies to protect the environment and things like that. The rulings on the Second Amendment, it was by far the most sweeping ruling on that ever. Right. The Supreme Court had never said that the Second Amendment reflected an individual right to gun ownership until 2008. That was the first time. It was called the Heller case. Right. And it said you could have an individual right, but you could have gun safety laws anyway. One of the things that Justice Scalia relied on when he did that ruling was he said, well, the word bear arms, bear means carry. 
use dictionaries. So it must be small enough to be able to carry. <laughs> well, it, a bunch of professors at Brigham Young University put all the writings from the founding era into a computer on the theory, I guess, that you could push a button and it would tell us what to do. Right. And the, they pushed the button and the computer said, bare arms means serving in the military, say, for example, a well-regulated militia. In other words, they just got the history flatly wrong. And that was Scalia was asked, what's the difference between you and Thomas? He said, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. Yeah. <laughs> and Thomas wrote the recent rule, and it basically says you cannot consider public safety when you're looking at a gun law, only, quote, history and tradition, uh, what laws they had back then. And even if you got that right, again, it's frankly reactionary, but it's the, the founders argued with each other. They changed their minds. Right. They lied about what they thought. I mean— <laughs> James Madison wrote the Federalist Papers with the others anonymously and then changed his mind and wrote anonymous articles attacking <laughs> the views he had himself propounded two years before. Those were before. the days. Those, that was <laughs> Those days are still happening. <laughs> that, that was blogging. I mean, that was— that The was, original, yeah. that, the proto-blogger. Right. Wow. So relying just on history is, is, uh, is plausible only if you don't actually know anything about history. Right. So where does Roberts, on a scale of originalism, where is he now and what's his shift? I mean, he has voted for some of these wackadoodle opinions in, in my view, but he's he he clearly does have an an institutionalist concern. I mean, mm-hmm. he he seems to think about and care about the credibility of the court. And and in many ways, that means it's public acceptance. It has no army. It, it has the power it has because we, the people— give it that power because we we want a strong judicial system and we are going to believe at some level it's above politics and, and acting like a court. He's been over the years trying to steer them to the right, but cautiously. And we saw that recently even in a voting rights case. So he is go- going along with the project, but trying to keep the other ex- conservatives from becoming too extreme. Right. They have to be aware that public credibility and support for the court has collapsed to its lowest level ever recorded in the polls. And that's a real potential crisis of legitimacy for them. The country is moving in one direction, and they're veering sharply in another direction. And it's hard to sustain that over the long run. So when you were saying, you know, they have an awareness of this, they have to do things incrementally, there are a couple of cases that— the decisions came out. There was the Alabama one, Mm -hmm. and then there was the— Native American adoption laws. So those were pretty surprising how they came out on those. Do you think that there was some sort of idea in the conservatives who went the way that we didn't expect them to, that they were going to do this, but then maybe like when they decide affirmative, like it's it's so, okay, we'll give you this and then we're going to gut affirmative action. We're going to get rid of the debt, the student debt uh, relief. There are a lot of mind games or at least a lot of people sitting around trying to parse it all out and guess, well, this voting rights ruling was better than expected. That means they're really going to destroy affirmative action. (laughs) The voting rights case in particular, I'll tell you, was a big surprise. Nobody thought it was going to come out the way it did. And the reason is when I talk about Roberts as being an incrementalist, the one area where he has not been an incrementalist has been the law of democracy. He's been as crusading and activist conservative as anybody, going back, if you think, to Citizens United in 2010, where they demolished the campaign finance laws of the United States, Shelby County, which was a decade ago, which gutted 
the most effective civil rights law, we had the Voting Rights Act. And Roberts personally has had a lifelong crusade against the Voting Rights Act and the particular section of the law that was being considered in this case. So nobody thought it was going to come out this way. The ruling was very solid. Um, It's going to help. It it said that uh, Alabama had drawn a racially discriminatory map for its congressional districts that even though black people are 27 percent of the state, there's only one, I think, out of seven or eight districts. Mm -hmm. It's going to lead probably to another redrawn district for for, uh, somebody the black community will elect. It's going to lead to new electoral maps in several other states as well. It could have a partisan impact. It definitely will have an impact on representation. We should caution our celebration on it in that all they did was uphold the existing law. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, the it, expectations are so low, though. Right. It, it's a welcome surprise. And, you know, you don't know, but um, it's certainly possible that the ferocity of the public backlash to the Supreme Court and to Dobbs and other things must have at least been in the peripheral vision of, of the justices when they right. were thinking about this. Yeah. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. You kind of take apart in your book the Dobbs leak. Um the two theories, the liberal theory that the Occam's razor, as you call it, that perhaps it was a young progressive who leaked it angrily, or perhaps it was this right wing bat signal, as others call it. Talk a little about that. You know, when it came out, it was not ultimately at that point a surprise that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade, but it was nevertheless a shock to see it in cold type and astonishing to see a leak. Right, because they've been talking about it for 50 years and somehow never got around to actually doing it. But that they actually were going to to do this move, first of all, I have no idea who who leaked it. That's important to say. This is the ultimate true crime podcast, you know, these (laughs) theories. Totally. But, you know, my first reaction was I thought, oh, it probably was a liberal staff member or something like that who was outraged and wanted the world to know. But then the more I looked at it, maybe I'm just confirming my own biases in saying this. Uh, There is a pattern and practice of leaks on the right Mm -hmm. over the past decade and a half designed to stop apostasy, designed to keep orthodoxy and to keep anybody from peeling off the sort of Federalist Society ranks. So in the Obamacare case, the Affordable Care Act, Roberts had originally voted, we now know, 
to strike the law down and then thought better of it. And when that word got out, you started to hear lots of people saying, don't go wobbly, John Roberts. And and it was discussed at the time, wow, there's a leak here. It happened again a few years ago in an LGBTQ rights case called Bostock Mm -hmm. about a month before the ruling, sort of out of nowhere. Suddenly, conservative uh, pundits started saying, Justice Gorsuch, don't be swayed by Elena Kagan's wily arguments. <laughs> and that's ex- and, and, and then Gorsuch wrote a surprisingly pro-LGBTQ opinion. And people said at the time, oh, it looks like another leak. The Wall Street Journal editorial page actually had this whole thing a week before Politico, which was the publication right. that got the leak. And then a week after, Politico reported, well, it looks like the five votes to overturn Roe are still holding. Well, that didn't come from Sonia Sotomayor. How would she know? Right. So clearly there's there's a very energized, loquacious network of conservative activists, funders, lawyers, former clerks surrounding the court that, you know, talk about all this stuff. And this is when we talk about the, the, the controversies about Thomas and, and Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow you know, that's not an ethics issue. This is a corruption issue. Right. Ethics is, can I have this cup of coffee? This is this, go- <laughs> this right-wing billionaire subsidized his lifestyle, kept it secret, paid for his mother's house, her renovations, and su- paid for his right. surrogate child's college education. But I don't think Clarence Thomas was like a liberal and then he took a jet trip and turned into a conservative. <laughs> right. It's the well-oiled and very well-funded political machine that puts so many of these justices into office mm-hmm. and and files the briefs and organizes the groups bringing the cases that surrounds the court right now that's really new and, and I would say disturbing. But it's important to remember, again, in the original ProPublica article um, about this, which broke the story, yep. there was a painting, uh, which was a painting of Thomas and, and Harlan Crowe. And they're smoking stogies by a lakeside at a luxury resort. It, honestly, it looked like the, the painting of the dogs playing <laughs> poker to me. But what was interesting oh, is the person who was with them was Leonard Leo. That's right. And he is the de facto leader of the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society is like nothing we've ever had in American politics as relates to the court. Basically, a faction of a faction has taken over this branch. Right. It started as a student club. It now picks at, at Yale, Harvard, and Chicago. Sounds um, right. Uh, I think uh, Scalia was one of their first faculty advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, it reflected the fact that then, as now, the law schools are very progressive. Right. And that conservatives sort of felt marooned in this very um, progressive environment. It's turned into a political operation. They picked the judges that Trump said he would put on the Supreme Court explicitly. They push for these nominees. They basically vet them in advance mm-hmm. so that there are not a lot of surprises and evolutions in people's thinking. And I run the Brennan Center for Justice. We work on constitutional legal issues, voting rights. I, I you know, I would look at the at the Federalist Society and say, well, they, you know, honestly, they're very effective considering they just don't have a lot of money. Well, <laughs> surprise. surprise, as you know, two years ago, it turns out somebody gave Leonard Leo $1.6 billion uh, 
And, and they run tens of millions of dollars of ads for and against justices. They create organizations that then file the cases or file the briefs at the court before the judges who they've installed. And it's not just the Supreme Court. When you look throughout the federal system, some of the really extreme and really inexperienced judges who we're learning the names of now were all active in the federal society. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas, who tried to personally ban mefepristone for the whole country, was a, a, a federal society activist. Judge Eileen Cannon, the— We were going to ask you about her. The, <laughs> Go right ahead. The MAGA talk show host That's who seems right. to have become the judge in the Trump <laughs> trial— uh, you know, very young uh, and not a lot of experience. Certainly, I think this may be her first criminal trial or one of her first criminal trials. She's, a, she's another Federalist <laughs> Society person. So it, this is something throughout the whole system. And, and uh, you know, our country, people get very worried about imaginary conspiracies <laughs> over the years, not just now, but, you know, going back to the 1800s. This is not a conspiracy, but this is a takeover happening in plain sight. Yeah. So you said the Trump word, and we want to talk about uh, the likelihood of some of Trump's legal problems going before the Supreme Court and what the mechanisms you know, would be. If you remember in the 2020 election when he was flailing around claiming he was he was going to have the election stolen or that it had been stolen, one of the reasons he, he kept arguing for Amy Coney Barrett being rushed onto the court just a few days before mm-hmm. Election Day um, was that he, it was my this case is going to go to the Supreme Court and they, they have to give me the election. Interestingly, at that time at least, the court did not have a great appetite for bailing Trump out of his problems. Um, th- that commitment in that way to the rule of law held a- a- at that moment. They just sort of swatted it all away. I, I always thought they viewed Trump as something of a distraction from their bigger and longer-term project of moving the law to the right. Um, I would say that there are ways that this could come up to the Supreme Court, though there are longstanding rules governing criminal trials, which are, in theory anyway, going to be what are in in place in this courtroom and throughout the system. But you could imagine, for example, questions relating to whether his lawyer's uh, notes could be part of the case, uh, which, which you could imagine her ruling, oh, no, half your evidence is not allowed, and that could get appealed. Um, it is. Uh, it's important. I was asked the other day uh, by some some friends. Well, if if she basically forces an acquittal, can that be appealed? Hmm. And generally speaking, there are some exceptions. Generally speaking, the answer is no. Prosecutors can't appeal an acquittal, and I don't think Great. we would want. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't think I want prosecutors to be able to appeal an acquittal. Fair. The defendants can appeal. <laughs> I'm very hard to yeah. run through scenarios De- in my head. Defendants can appeal a conviction, but so it's possible something would go up right. there. And you know, the, of course, this is not anything that's ever happened in our country before. Um, it wouldn't be a surprise if I went to the Supreme Court. I think. We have to understand that it's a legal proceeding, but it's not just an everyday run-of-the-mill case. I hope they allow television cameras in, for example, Mm -hmm. um, which is not normally true in federal courts. Why is that? Tradition is probably the main answer. It's also the case that the the argument is you don't want people playing to the camera. Mm -hmm. You don't want the camera changing the reality in the courtroom. Here— the worry would be that the defendant would play to the camera right. <laughs> or the judge, <laughs> not the lawyers so much. But right. I think that 
Um, you wouldn't want the jurors to have their pictures on TV. Sure. That's another one. But uh, I bet that they will be an order from above that it should be televised. It's hard hard to get people to trust an outcome in something like this if they can't see it. Right, right. So another canon question, um, you know, she came into the public consciousness when she sort of interfered in the investigation after the raid at Mar-a-Lago. And um, a conservative appeals court panel, I mean, they issued an opinion that was basically, you know, paraphrasing, (laughs) this woman knows nothing about, like, the law. It was scathing. Do you think that there's any um, possibility that now moving forward she will want to avoid such professional um, uh, humiliation. And so would that inform perhaps her, how she approaches this case? That kind of thing certainly happens with judges a lot. Mm -hmm. They don't like to be overturned, especially in that manner. Um, It was another example, as with the 63 rulings in courts all across the country that rejected Trump's false claims of a stolen election. A lot Mm -hmm. of them were Federalist Society judges. Um, you know, she, on the other hand, may be playing a different game. <laughs> yeah. If she's ambitious and looking for a promotion, ruling against Trump will hurt her, you know, right. with her base, as it yeah. were. Uh, we're in new territory. I don't think anybody oh, knows. Very scary. In, in normal, normal stuff, yes, the, the trial judge would be cautious under those <laughs> circumstances. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know what, whether to read anything into this, but it was noteworthy to me that she didn't show up for the first hearing. She had a magistrate judge. Right. Which is allowable if you're talking about someone who's arrested for, like, having a stolen car. Right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let me just go on the record. If I'm ever a federal judge, they arrest the former president. You'll be there. I'm going to be there. Yeah. You heard anyway. it here. <laughs> yeah. We will be right back after this short break. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I want to circle back to the interpersonal dynamics on the court, their personalities, um, the alliances on the court, and how those things have shifted and how it's no longer this um, Scalia, Ginsburg, like, happy, go to the opera court. (laughs) What is it now? Like, what's the lay of the land among the justices? Every indication is that the tensions of the last few years are real. The court is not a happy place. And in fact, they're now attacking each other in public and doing a lot of the divisive work in front of all of us. Um, It it was said of an earlier era of 
the Supreme Court that they were nine scorpions in a bottle. <laughs> and now, you know, the scorpions are sort of crawling all over the table. I mean, Clarence Thomas last year gave a speech that said, well, this was a great place to work until John Roberts became <laughs> chief justice. Um, they've been attacking each other's um, language in public. The leak was very divisive, of course. Um there's this idea, oh, we all go eat dinner together and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. when after the leak, Alito uh, w- was speaking at a law school and he wouldn't go there because there were going to be protests. So he did by Zoom, even though it was about a mile and a half from where he was. And a student very plaintively said, oh, can you assure us that you're all friends and you, you know, t- turn it off when the— and and he basically after you're finished fucking over yeah. democracy, <laughs> sure, he, that's he, how it used to be. He, well, he basically times. said, um, "Well, let me give you this answer: We go to work, we write our opinions. Isn't that enough?" <laughs> and uh, so it does not seem that they're very happy. And if you listen to the speeches by Justice Kagan, especially and others, there's great sadness and great unhappiness on the part of the liberals mm-hmm. who understand how extreme. What's happened is I think the closer one gets to it, the more alarming it is because it's not just a, a, a ruling I don't like here or a ruling li- I like there, but a very, very concerted effort to push hard as far as possible, as fast as possible in a way that is just damaging the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of so many people over and over and over again. How's Barrett doing? She's still new. She was one of the only people who could not pretend to not have a view on abortion during mm-hmm. her contrib- mm-hmm. her uh, confirmation hearings because she was so out front. But her elevation to the court was so almost instantaneous right. that we don't know as much about her views as some of the others. In a way, she's a little bit less pre-vetted than, than people who've been on the federal bench for, for a decade or two. So far, though, she's marched in lockstep with the others pretty regularly. I want to ask you about Justice Jackson and how she's doing in her first year. And how do you think um, that that block of the three liberal justices, how can you characterize their thinking? Do you think they communicate? You know, it's an exciting thing in the sense that the three liberals on the court Mm -hmm. are all women. A black woman, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, a Latina, Sonia Sotomayor. Um, and, and a Jewish woman. And mm-hmm. th- these are the likely dissenters. And, and going forward over time, and, and think of just the kind of political ramifications of that, I think that uh, when you see her on the bench, the questions she's asking, she's brought a jolt of energy and intellectual energy to this that seems to have a visible impact. Um, it, her questioning is really sharp and, and tr- terrific. For example, in the affirmative action case, which is one of the cases that they are going to be considering and they're ruling on this month, Mm -hmm. whether to end affirmative action in higher education, in effect, end the use of race even as a factor in in admissions. She asked a question at the argument. She said, well, there's two essays that have come into the University of North Carolina. One is from an applicant who says, I want to go to UNC because my granddaddy went there. It means a lot to me. And the other person writes and says, I want to go to UNC because my grandfather couldn't go there because he was black and it would mean a lot to me mm-hmm. to go. That latter one, that's not allowed, but the first one is. Wow. That's a, that's a heck of a question. And, and it really that sort chills. of stumped the lawyer. Um, 
And I'll say that, uh, you know, we'll see what the impact of it is. Uh, it's hard to know in the voting rights case. But again, that was that was one of the first cases she was on and it had a difference. But I, I, I can't stress enough, numbers matter. Mm-hmm. Having six conservative votes matter. It means John Roberts may switch his vote, but he's only one vote. Right. And uh, it's part of a kind of a longer disconnect between the Supreme Court and the country that that I'm not sure is quite we, – we sense it, but I'm not sure we quite know it. One party – and this is not a partisan point, but it's an empirical point. One party has won – the Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. The other party – and that's the longest winning streak, by the way, in American history for a political party. The other party has appointed six of the nine Supreme Court justices. The two parties have divided control of the White House more or less evenly Mm -hmm. for the past half century. Mm -hmm. The last time justices appointed by a Democratic president had a majority was 1970. The last – this is a trivia question (laughs) from hell. Um, I'm excited. Hell trivia. The the last time a Democratic president appointed a chief justice of the United States was 1946. So some of this is just – Bad luck. This is not all Mitch McConnell uh, blockading nominations. There's something structural here. Some of it is bad luck. Um, but again, it just underscores the lack of accountability, the degree to which the court can be walled off from the consequences of its actions. And when they aren't being self-restrained, the degree to which their own radicalism can lead to radical rulings. You mm-hmm. mentioned that it's a numbers game, obviously. One of the big things that a lot of liberal people would like to see is the court expanded. Do you think that is a just a liberal fantasy that's never going to happen? Or do you actually see this as a possibility in the future? What I support, what what I'm working towards are term limits. Yeah. I think there ought to be an 18-year term for Supreme Court justices, coupled with each president getting a, a, an appointment every two years. Yeah. Um, that's kind of rooted in the insight that nobody should have that much public power for too long. And if you think about it, George Washington, when he stepped down from the presidency after two terms, that was baked into his understanding of right. how to restrain power. Term limits are pretty interesting because they're actually very popular mm-hmm. um, across the political spectrum in ways you wouldn't expect. I was a member of the Presidential Commission on the U.S. Supreme Court appointed by President Biden in 2021. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these government commissions, they're, they're, <laughs> they're often to deflect action. And we were actually ordered at the outset not to reach conclusions. <laughs> it's actually true. And we didn't, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, make no recommendation. We, we, you know, a government right. agency that works as intended, finally. But it was interesting. We heard from dozens of public witnesses from left and right. And that some were for court expansion, others were against it. Some were for ethics code, others were against it. Um, they, over and over they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. It's actually widely popular. Now, it could be done by constitutional amendment. We at the Brennan Center believe it could be done by statute also. Um, but one way or another, I think it's an idea that's going to happen. I have caught— Why 18 years? Sorry. Uh, it—, it, it Partly because the math adds up that it becomes eventually a nine a nine person court. It works with the, every two years. I think it's about right. They're not on too short, but they don't stay on too long. Mm-hmm. It's not there's not there's not a lot of magic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, but that's kind of where things have sort of settled. I I put out a lot of cautionary notes 
around court expansion, which a lot of liberals mm-hmm. want. Um, it's hard to see how it would not lead to. First of all, it's it's entirely legal. Yeah, nine justices is not in this in the Constitution. Right. Congress has changed the size of the court before. You could argue that Mitch McConnell changed it and kept it at eight when he yeah. wouldn't consider a nomination for a year from President Obama. Um, so it's entirely legal. It's entirely constitutional. It's hard to see how it would not lead to a retaliatory spiral where you, Democrats appoint five justices, Republicans right. appoint five. I, I do worry, too, that anything we do, whether term limits or anything else, court expansion, has to really be looked at in the question of will people regard it as legitimate? Right. And I think that even FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, found out he had just won re-election in the biggest electoral landslide in American history. Democrats had 70 percent of the Senate. The Supreme Court of that day had struck down the New Deal mm-hmm. and was a, much of the New Deal and was about to go after Social Security and the labor laws. These were popular things. Right. And even he, when he proposed court expansion, discovered an un, unseen reservoir of massive public reverence for the court. Mm. It blew up the New Deal coalition. We see this kind of thing on the streets of Tel Aviv where people are reacting in a visceral way to what they thought were illegitimate court changes. So, look, come back to me after. There's a few cases I want to see the outcome right. of. I may change <laughs> my mind. But I, I, I think the, the better approach is, is, to me, is term limits, um, where there is a chance to have a broad public consensus for it. So obviously we have the affirmative action one we're looking at. We have the student loan relief. But um, I want to know about what's going to happen or what you think is going to happen with the case where they're basically deciding if um, states can more or less, you know, decide who the next president is going to be. That's the unexploded, I hope, neutron bomb. Stay It's called Moore versus Harper. The conservative, former conservative federal judge Michael Ludwig calls it the most important case for democracy in two centuries. The idea is that somehow the Constitution gave state legislatures the power to set rules for federal elections with no checks and balances from state constitutions, state courts, governors, signing and vetoing bills, voters, and that nobody noticed it until now. Right. It's a <laughs> crackpot idea. It's made up. It was first pushed by Trump. Uh, when he was trying to overturn the 2020 election. It's not how any state runs its elections, but at least four of the justices thought it was a good enough idea to hear the case. The argument went very well. It was a massive outcry. Uh, For example, the Conference of Chief Justices of Supreme Courts of the states filed a brief on behalf of neither side, which is, can be done. They say we, we're on behalf of neither party. They said we take no position on this litigation. We're on behalf of neither party. Having said that, if you do this, it's the end of American democracy. And let us tell you why. But they're not taking But we aside. take no position. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it looked in the argument like the court had no appetite to do the really bad version of this. But the devil is in the details. They may also declare it moot because the— the state court in North Carolina that had it blocked the gerrymander there, which was mm-hmm. what the case was about, has new justices on their state Supreme Court who now say, oh, that looks wonderful and have approved the gerrymander. So the U.S. Supreme Court may say, we're not going to deal with this now, but it's going to come back from a place like Ohio or other places. This is part of a very um, radical right-wing effort to remake the law of democracy to give the power to state legislatures 
who are among the most partisan and and uh, extreme people in our whole political system. What other countries in the world do they have high courts where it's lifetime appointments? Uh, none. We're the only one. And, and also <laughs> no the, democracy all, for sure. Also the the uh, they either have a term limit or a, or a retirement age, okay. mandatory mm-hmm. retirement age. Same thing with every state supreme court, but one. Um, so it's pretty it's unusual. What's the one? Rhode Island. Hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of jokes about Rhode Island to be made, but that, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, I, I think there's a, one of the answers to this moment is reform of the Supreme Court itself. I think also that people who are upset about these rulings need to vote about it and organize about it. This is something conservatives have been doing for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the backlash, there have been other periods in American history where most of the time the Supreme Court hugs the middle. It reflects whatever the consensus is mm-hmm. of the time. I think when you look at what happened after Dobbs, we may be living through this kind of convulsive political reaction now, too. When you look at the midterm election, uh, the Democrats did better than any party has in control of the White House in a midterm election in decades. The ballot initiatives, the state Supreme Court elections, there's something big happening. The voter registration rates for women, I mean, so much of this is around abortion rights. Something big is happening. And the Supreme Court in response to it is part of the reason. Do you think that there's any regret among justices individually or collectively about the Dobbs ruling? On the one hand, it's why they were put there. Totally. Um, On the other hand, they have to be aware that they have— triggered a political maelstrom. In the past, public reaction has helped change the course of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, Conceivably, it's happening again. Maybe that's one of the reasons the voting rights ruling came out as it did. But I would say more broadly, this, again, six votes making the difference are more ideological, more disciplined, and more in lockstep than previous eras. Um, but, you know, the, one of the questions in this month of June with all these big rulings and That's going right. forward is if, if the public screams loud enough, will the court change its course? Will it moderate its course? Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said in an interview, I think it was possibly with NPR, this very extreme group of six justices have the ability to make significant changes in our country going forward, but we have the ability to hold them accountable. Um as we, you know, when we talked about Thomas and Harlan Crow, it seems like they're the most unaccountable people in the country and there's no hope of ever holding them accountable. But you, you seem to be an optimist. You think it's possible. How, what are the concrete steps and how is it possible to hold these people accountable? I think there are many ways to hold them accountable. I think there are many ways to push back and, and take control of the situation. The reforms of the Supreme Court, like uh, term limits or an ethics code, Congress very often can pass laws to undo some of these bad rulings. When the Supreme Court over the past decade gutted the Voting Rights Act, Congress has the power to restore the full strength of the Voting Rights Act. It just has to have the will to overcome the filibuster. Right. And in fact, uh, a uh, proposed law to undo what the Supreme Court did passed the House of Representatives and even had a majority of the Senate Last year, but two senators, as you know, uh, Manchin and Cinema, wouldn't change the rules. But but there's a majority in in the in the Senate to do that. We can do things that stretch our constitutional imaginations, like pass constitutional amendments. They seem impossible, 
They always seem impossible. And then when things get bad enough, which happens about every 50 years, they come in a burst of, of constitutional change. Yeah. Um, and above all else, we can vote on this. Conservatives, to their credit, have waged long-term campaigns in the court of public opinion on constitutional issues. They have talked about the court and the Constitution as core political issues for, for, for years and years. Liberals have not. Progressives have not. They don't talk about the court, no. except maybe hoping someday that they could bring a case and get a big ruling. But right. it has not been a topic issue. That's got to change. Liberals have to fall out of love with the Supreme Court. They have to not be bedazzled by the memory of a period half a century ago when it was an affirmative and positive force. Yeah. If, if the whole country is talking about this, debating it, pushing on it, and understanding it is above all else a political set of issues— that's the best way we can hold this court accountable and bring the Constitution back to where it needs to be. It, it, it turns out in the end that the three most important words in the Constitution are the first three, we the people. That's who has to kind of run the show, and then we'll be fine. Okay. Okay. I like Let's it. do it. We the people. <laughs> we the hive. We the people on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bess. Listeners, you should check out Bess's great piece for VF.com this week, The Laugh Out Loud Funniest and Shit Your Pants Scariest Details of the Case Against Donald Trump. And I want to thank Michael Waldman, who is president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. His new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America, is out this month. Jane Mayer of The New Yorker called it nothing less than a public service. High praise indeed. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis. This episode was mixed by Bob Mallory. Thank you so much for listening. Anyway, thank I gotta you so get you much. to sign my book. Wait, do you have a pen? Good, because I don't. But tell, tell me your spelling. C L A I R E. Is that your word for wordle? <laughs> no, freak is my first word. Oh. Mm. I like tramp. <laughs> Interesting. I, it's not about the vowels. It's just. Same. <laughs> I like. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.